I've always thought, said Rainsford, that the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all big game. For a moment, the general did not reply. He was smiling his curious red-lipped smile. Then he said slowly, no, you are wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous big game. He sipped his wine. Here in my preserve on this island, he said in the same slow tone, I hunt more dangerous game. In the most dangerous game by Richard Connell, the hunter becomes the hunted, becomes the hunter. Hey, uh, uh, you've got a little time. You know, we've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia of the Clan Garcia. Today here upon with... I am Christy L. Baxter of the Mount Rainier Baxters. No. (laughs) Have you ever been to Mount Rainier? (laughs) I've seen it from afar while driving in Washington. I don't know why I chose that. I was going for I, my first instinct was Mount Batten, which is like one of the the old, you know, like royal last names. I was like, no, I've said I've are too many times that I'm Queen Elizabeth, so I can't go with that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Christy. We'll never be royals. Um, hey, Christy. Yes. I understand that regular short stories have just lost their luster as I stalk them. What short story should I stalk and hunt today? If you are feeling that ennui of not really being challenged, then you should stalk the short story, The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. And let me say, this is a story I don't think I'd ever read but know so thoroughly because everyone has done it. It was done as a movie in the 30s. It was done as a movie, I think, in the 80s. I, I have some sort of vision of Val Kilmer doing it or something. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that sounds right, actually. And I'm, uh, that's almost like a retrieved memory that came out of nowhere when you said that. Whoa. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I've seen it now and I totally forgot about it. No, sorry, sorry, Val. Uh, But yeah, it's so thoroughly soaked into our culture that you can encounter it so many times in so many different venues, be it films, be it other stories, be it TV, and not ever have actually read the story itself. (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) And I think one of the things about it is that it is an exceptionally good example of what genre was able to do in the 1920s and 30s and teens and technically even before that. But since then, it sort of changed. This is a straight up old fashioned adventure story, but it is an adventure story that has taken all of the adventure story stuff and set upon it a moral framework to work with that gives it so much more depth and interest and it's a much more intelligent adventure story than i'm used to reading from the old times i love the old pulps and you know this is 
This is not of the quality of a pulp, but it is definitely the kind of story you would read in a pulp. Yeah, it's it's like a pulp, but with a question kind of baked into it that, you, like you said, there's a, a sort of a moral purpose to it. It's investigating this question of if you're hunting men, is it still hunting or is it murder? Which, yeah, I think we all kind of agree it's murder. We super, super agree. Super, it's, it's murder. It's murder. And, um, but it's don't done lay your, a... Don't lay your trip on me here, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to kink shame. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope I wasn't just by virtue of there not being a kink there, and that's okay. So, yeah, it is It is quite well written. The suspense keeps you going. The descriptions are good. And there's definitely some knowledge behind it. And then, yeah, and then that ending where he becomes what he feared and hated, uh, the our protagonist, uh, Rainsford, and that sort of, you know, there's a comeuppance, but there's also the question of, well, is he going to continue this now? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, is that there is, the ending is a moment that either propels us into this story again, or propels us into something that is the realization that you have to end this pathway, that there's a progression that is going on here that the hunter, as you go to bigger and bigger game, someone has to put their flag down and say, this is as far as we can go and have it be morally good. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that there is so many different morality issues pointed out here. The one classic being, you know, is it okay to hunt humans? No, it's probably not. He said sighingly, um, but probably, <laughs> <laughs> but then it also reflects back. Well, where do you put that line? Is it okay to hunt, you know, dolphins? Cause they're practically humans in the water. Um, you know, is it, you know, do, is there something inherent in humanity that makes it wrong to kill humans that doesn't exist further down the evolutionary or, sideways laterally on the evolutionary line and that becomes really a tough question to deal with because we know for a fact going into this that it is wrong to hunt people and as we look at the general thank you why did my mind go so wrong (laughs) (laughs) Um, as we look at him we now have to wonder well is that the only thing that it's wrong to hunt and yeah. that, that gets me. Yeah, I mean, I think different people have different answers to that question because it is a question of morality and we all have have different lines and everything. I mean, I got a little upset when they were talking about hunting snow leopards. I was like, I think those are pretty close to extinct, you bastards. And I'm now I'm angry at a fictional character, which is really kind of uh, how I live my life anyhow. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I could put that on my resume Let's be the subtitle <laughs> or of my memoir even. Uh, but, but yeah, like it, there, there's the question of, okay, so at what, at what intelligence level is it okay to just go out and kill things? And also another aspect is 
turn it around. And the general is like, well, I got so bored with hunting because, you know, if your rifle is well tuned enough and if your dogs are good enough, like, hey, maybe you try going out there with just a knife, asshole. Like, (laughs) come on. If it's so hard, then take away the things that are, or rather, I'm sorry, if it's so easy, then take away the things that are making it easy instead of upping the ante on what you're killing and maybe just stop killing things. I don't know. Yeah, no, that is, I think those are all completely legitimate questions. And what's amazing is where this type of story would be appearing is in publications that celebrated exactly that type of character. And so you would have the most dangerous game surrounded by, you know, a dozen stories of, you know, disgraced generals who are out there in the the jungle, typically... um, trying to kill animals, usually on the backs of pygmies, uh, this whole sort of world that exists. This is not, I would say, a story that particularly is playing with the bigger picture of, well, also what is the role of the hunter in a society? But I think it is playing with the idea of when the hunter exists, how can we put them in a moral section in our sort of mindset and by you know including these in publications that have where that moral concept is gone how do we you know sort of synthesize that into it and i think this is really sort of one of the peak adventure stories because adventure stories admittedly tend to be garbage yeah (laughs) as much as as i love them and have a, a strong strong place in my heart for them the stuff that we were seeing from people like and maybe you've heard of him, L. Ron Hubbard. Um, <laughs> he wrote a lot of adventure stuff. Some of it's okay, um, but you know, none of it rises to the level where this has taken the whole concept. One thing I did want to talk about, though, is there is a type of writing you expect, and it's not even a type of writing, it is a type of overwriting <laughs> that I expect mm. in adventure stuff. And this is actually a, a small section that I think really develops that um after the debacle in russia i left the country for it was imprudent for an officer of the Tsar to stay there many noble russians lost everything i luckily had invested heavily in american securities so i shall never have to open a tea room in monte carlo or drive a taxi in paris naturally i continued to hunt grizzliest in your rockies crocodiles and oh grizzlies it says grizzliest literally uh, grizzliest in your Rockies, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceroses in East Africa. I, it was in Africa that the Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me out. You see, it just keeps going and going. And there's so much there. And one of the reasons I think for that is this idea that the stories are so simplistic. A traditional adventure story is a great man goes out into the world and conquers, a.k.a. the Hemingway path. But here, it's so much more, but it's still using that whole, we got to give you a whole lot of words because it's all going to be so simple. Yeah, Yeah, I think really there was definitely, uh, instead of a word count maximum like we have now, there was a word count minimum that writers of that time period were trying to reach that's not to say that this is filled with fluff or 
any sort of empty nonsense. I mean, it's, it's important for the general to tell that story. And he is giving you a summary of the actual adventure stories, you know, the 9,000 words of the adventure stories that were out there in magazines. He's giving you a brief summary of that in order to, to establish who his character is. And I think it also would help that adventure reader kind of settle in a little bit more comfortably before you turn the tables on them and you're they're like, whoa, wait a second. Oh, the guy I identify with is the bad guy? Crap. You know, like before that feeling kicks in. Correct. I think that the thing that I actually never would have caught onto that and you you know, the fact that you have to establish how this is a regular adventure story and how it connects. And I, you're smarter than I am and I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not smarter than you are. Stop it. If anything, we're equals. <laughs> there are no such thing as equals. Only people who are hunted and those who hunt. Well, damn, if if you think I'm smarter than you, I guess I'm the hunter and you're the hunted. I don't like that. I wouldn't want to be the hunted either. Can I just not be a part of this narrative at all? Uh, no, you signed on for this. Anyhow. Um, damn it. What I love, though, is it doesn't bog down in its philosophy. Yes. And that is insanely difficult. I know if I ever tried to write anything that is trying to present a philosophical question, it bogs down. And I think there is a trick here that Connell uses throughout that I think really actually helps that. Since a lot of this is dialogue, often the dialogue is not tagged with, you know, the general said or Raysford said. It's, there's just the, the same. So it sort of trips through. You get to go back and forth without any sort of, distraction from just the words that are being said and i think that was a technique that you know a lot of writers when they use that uh really makes me makes me go and then when you get to the desk heavy adventure uh exposition prose it feels like they're almost the same thing like the quotes are just there as existing and then when you get to the expository lump which this definitely does have it flows so well because you have this sort of back and forth in your head that all the dialogue was. Yeah. And that, that dialogue that's not tagged, I feel like that's definitely the sign, especially in the day and age that this was written when the dialogue tags were, were far. Oh God, they were, they were everywhere. Um, so I really think that that's a sign of a writer who is confident that the reader can easily distinguish his characters apart without having to identify them. And so you have a writer who's confident enough to do that. And you have characters that are strong enough and stand on their own two feet well enough that they're, yeah, the the reader does not need that particular aid here. And I feel like that's another way that it makes it sort of the writing flow better and speed through faster. That's not to say that you can always get away without dialogue tags or that he even does. He, He has it in, some cases and he also uses um oh god there's a term for it that's completely slipped my mind but the sort of dialogue tags that aren't necessarily tags so much as they are you know physical indicators of movement or response like Rainsford expressed his surprise the general nodded you know like he he attaches those 
but it makes it flow so much better than some of the literature in this literature in this day uh, it, of its time does. And so, yeah, but there is that big expository lump. You're right. But it's, it's an interesting and suspenseful expository lump. Oh, absolutely. And what that does allow him to do is a couple points where he allows you to sort of give a ambiguity to what a character says. My personal favorite is, you know, during the chase, then it was Rainsford knew the full meaning of terror. I will not lose my nerve. I will not. That could be either one of them. That yeah. Ambi- yeah, that ambiguity is allowed to flow because there is no tag to it. Yeah, and that's that's an ambiguity that like I'm fine with having. <laughs> I like it because it shows us just the fact that it's ambiguous shows us what point these characters have come to. Yeah, completely. And I love I love ambiguity in general, I guess. Sort of, maybe. But I love the fact that when we get to the end of this story, we have not necessarily answered our own question, but the writing has. And I do have to say, the single most cliche thing, I was literally cringing at how dopey this cliche was. Um, uh, Then he switched on the light, a man who had been hiding in the curtains of the bed was standing there. Like how many movies can you think of where someone turns on the light and suddenly there's John Turturro sitting in a chair. (laughs) It's that sort of thing. And then I realized, well, wait, this is probably where that came from. (laughs) Yeah. It was written before John Turturro was born. I think I'm pretty sure if, if he's much older than I think he is, or, you know, is, is perhaps a vampire or something, but yeah, it was written 33 years before he was even born. So there you have it. <laughs> I drank John Turturro's wine one time, just saying. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> the was name, <laughs> it is Drops. <laughs> <laughs> Some people mic drop, you name drop. <laughs> I do? Funny. <laughs> but yeah. I love, I, honestly, I love this story and it, how it fits in with my appreciation of the sort of genre umbrella. And I love when genre, from a time when genre was genre and real writing was real writing, I love it when those authors play with those bigger ideas. And I think this one does it, does it incredibly well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it takes some nerve. And uh, talent to play with those big ideas. And like you said, not hit the reader over the head with it. So it's so nice to see it done so well. And I think that the, the part, all of these aspects of it, the, the fact that the, the prose flows so well, the fact that it takes on a big idea, but not in a heavy handed manner. The fact that it turns a, a trope of the day on its head and makes people question things. I think all of those are probably a lot of the reasons that it is such an enduring tale and has become, has permeated our society so much in our entertainment. I 100% agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Good. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is this a, this I don't, is a don't have to argue my point. <laughs> <laughs> but you could if you wanted to, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Hey, Christy. Yes. I have a little time for next week. What what should I read? 
if you have a little time, then we've got a little short story you should read. And that is Miriam by Truman Capote. Excellent. Truman Capote, one of my favorite actors of the 1970s. (laughs) Very much looking forward to it. And he also hung out at, at Studio 54. So how could he be wrong? Right? Yeah. Oh, you know, we didn't mention the true crime aspect of The Most Dangerous Game. Oh, here we go. All right. I was waiting. I was going to remind you if we didn't get there. Go ahead. Go do your thing. <laughs> so, of course, The Most Dangerous Game is was a huge story. It was a huge film in the 1930s. And one of the things that happened was that when the Zodiac Killer was sending his letters, he referenced The Most Dangerous Game two times very concretely and a couple times uh, was otherwise. And one of the theories that came out of that was that he was a projectionist or was a general hangers-on at one of the theaters in San Francisco that showed the most dangerous game twice, once in 1968 and the second time in 1969 in very early in the year. And so that the theory was that the most dangerous game was his his motive, more or less. It was what clicked in his brain. Oh, I have to go out and hunt man. Um, But that could all be just conjecture. <laughs> sort of like how Jodie Foster triggered it and what John Hinckley's brain that he's like, oh, I have to go out and hunt Ronald Reagan. Yeah, no, but I get that. That like, that's, that's normal. <laughs> that's totally normal. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. I like it. I mean, he could have been a projectionist or he could have just been, I don't, I don't like that he had to, have, like the theory has to be that he was a projectionist. He was. He could just be a person who went to the movies. I mean, that's more likely than there. The proportion of people who go to the movies is higher than the percentage of people who are projectionists. I'm just saying. So, and there are plenty of people who go to the same movie many times. I mean, you know, uh, eventually uh, Star Wars would come out, and people would go to that like a million times. So, so yeah, and. I don't see why he couldn't just go to the movie a bunch to go see the, the most dangerous game. Or maybe let's give some credit where credit is due. Maybe he read the short story. You just cracked the case. We need to find someone who can read. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> also, projectionists are genuinely creepy people. So <laughs> Maybe that explains the, the attempt to connect the projectionist to the Zodiac. And says the former projectionist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look what you did to yourself. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) self-burn. Yes. Well, that is going to be a good read for us next week. So until then, I wish you short story. And I wish you short podcast. (laughs) 